Welcome to the podcast, Ninada, The Waves of Music. This podcast is envisioned as a platform to create a dialogue between the arts and science. In particular, we are here to explore the confluence of music, culture, and cognition. I'm your host, Chaitra. I'm a physics PhD candidate and a Carnatic classical musician with an interest in understanding the scientific and cultural aspects of music. In this episode, we have Dana Bobinder, a neuroscience PhD student at MIT and Harvard, studying how music is represented in the brains of musicians and non-musicians. Hi, Dana. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Tell us about how you got into music, into studying music formally, and how did you decide to pursue it from a scientific perspective? Yeah, so I started my formal music training when I was only three years old, um, taking piano lessons. We lived across the street from a woman who taught piano lessons, specializing in little children. And I guess my parents thought it was a a good way to get me out of the house and doing something. So yeah, I've been, I guess, studying music my whole life. And I could read music before I could even read words. So it's definitely like a big part of my childhood that I remember. I guess I really just enjoyed all of this sort of structure that comes with like classical music training that there's, you know, exercises and you have to like be very precise and try to get, you know, everything perfect. And it's all very detail oriented. And I liked all the sorts of, I don't know, sort of external rewards, prizes and getting to play with different groups that you have to audition for. And I, I kind of really thrived on all of that, being a little overachieving perfectionist. It kind of fit all of the things that I really liked. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's definitely been a pretty big part of my life, sort of in parallel to science. Nice. That's kind of how it, this happened for me too. Like I started playing music when I was three years old also. And I looked forward to going to music classes all the time. It was so much fun. Our music teacher was so much fun. She had a pretty garden with flowers and we'd play there and sing. And uh, so those were probably some of the best times of my early life. So I, I get where you're coming from, how this would be a very formative experience for you. Um, I also understand that you play multiple instruments. What instruments have you trained in? And do you still play them all or have you kind of specialized to one instrument or? Yeah, so I I started playing the piano when I was three. I guess we just had a piano in the house and a conveniently located piano teacher. Uh, And then in, I guess, fourth grade. So when I was like nine or 10, I think. Then they, uh, in my school, at least, when you were allowed to join orchestra, Mm -hmm. like a little string orchestra. So I started playing violin. Um, and then the year after that, you were allowed to join band, playing flute. And really, the only reason why I started playing the flute was that that's what my mom had played in high school. And so she had an old one in the closet um, and she didn't really want to buy a new instrument. So I started playing the flute and that's the one that stuck. I stopped taking piano lessons and stopped playing an orchestra. But I chose the flute and I stuck with that all the way uh, to the current day. I right now would say that I pretty much only play the flute. It would take a a lot of time and effort for me to plunk something out on the piano. 
you know my musical journey was also kind of like that even though i didn't learn multiple instruments i was trained in vocals and veena but then later on when you start to go more and more into your career it becomes so hard to kind of dedicate the time and actually do justice to all of the different instruments so i had to kind of leave the vocals and the veena was always closer to my heart anyway so uh lots of parallels here but i guess where we differ is that you decided to stay and pursue a degree in music so how did you decide that what was your thought process for that well i think i just wasn't sure what else i would do so in high school i was doing a lot of music stuff extracurricularly playing in like honor bands and all state groups and going to music camps and So it was a really big part of what I was doing and I felt like it was something I was decently good at and I didn't really have another topic that I knew that I wanted to study. Mm-hmm. So going into college, I decided I would stick with music, but I was always conscious that not everyone is able to cut it in the classical music professional world and that I should probably have something maybe a little bit more quote practical rather than just doing flute performance. So I was always looking for something else to do sort of in parallel and then in the process of applying to colleges learned about the field of music therapy that combined music but also I knew that I really liked the psychology class that I was taking my senior year of high school and so I thought that was a good sort of combination and everything I was sort of reading about it at the time was saying that the growing field there's you know always jobs and so it, it felt like it kind of checked that checkbox of something where I would actually be able to get a job right so Yeah, I started college thinking that I would be a professional music therapist. And then that kind of didn't go so well mostly for two reasons. One, I'm a terrible singer. You have to be able to sing for that? That's a huge part of the job. You have to be able to, you know, make music sort of live with with the people you're working with. And so singing is pretty important for for most kinds of music therapy and usually you have to have some sort of instrument. Mhm. and the most common instrument that people use because it's portable is a guitar and i also was like i had took guitar class in college and i found it really difficult so that was kind of a struggle but also the more i learned about what it actually looks like to be a music therapist i got really interested in a lot of the topics and things i was learning in class but i found that i was more interested in knowing the facts behind it right So we would learn a certain technique that helps people who have had aphasia or language loss after a stroke that you can, you know, use this sort of technique to help them regain their language again. I was interested in like why does that work and what's going on in the brain to make that happen. But as a music therapist, you really only care about learning the technique and how to apply it and you don't really have the the time or the training to interrogate why it works. Mm-hmm. kind of found myself getting more interested in the research behind it and so switched my focus from actually being a music therapist to something where I wouldn't have to sing <laughs> and would be able to kind of learn why these things are working switched to being double major in music and psychology and that's what I did in college wow so tell us more about that how does music therapy help in regaining language facilities uh, for people with aphasia who have lost language processing powers after a stroke or something yeah there's a there's a lot of research into that mm-hmm. 
I guess music therapy as a field suffers from the fact that a lot of the people who are music therapists, as I said, don't have the bandwidth or the training to do like the research that's needed to investigate these things or to show how effective they are. Mm-hmm. Whereas people, I guess now like me, who are scientists, don't necessarily have the expertise and understanding of music therapy and all these things to do really great research on, from that side either. Right. So there's some that's known, but there's a lot that we still don't really understand exactly how it's working. But at least the, the example I gave with language recovery after a stroke, the technique that I was referring to is called melodic intonation therapy. And the idea is that if you lose the ability to speak, um, oftentimes people are still able to sing. It's the same sort of effect that you sometimes see in people who have a stutter. They have trouble speaking, but oftentimes they're able to sing without a stutter. Right. So there's clearly something different in the brain behind the production of speech and some music. The idea is you teach people to sing the phrases that they might need. Can I have a drink of water or something? And then you start off by having them sing this kind of ridiculously contoured melody And you slowly change the melody of that to get it so that it sounds more like just a normal speech melody. But really what they're doing is kind of using the pathways in the brain that are more involved with singing than speaking and trying to strengthen those. Or at least that's kind of the the understanding. I see. So it seems like you're saying that this technique of melodic intonation therapy repurposes music pathways to help in language processing functions in people who have lost language use. So it seems like you're saying that there are actually two different pathways in the brain, one for music perception and the other for language processing and speech perception, and they're not necessarily overlapping. Is it fair to say that they're also produced differently? Yeah. I usually study perception rather than production, which in science or in in this field of science, we see two very different things. But when it comes to music, I feel like that distinction is not really as meaningful. So I know more about the science of perception. (laughs) But at least on the perceptual side of things, it does seem like speech and music are pretty separated. So obviously everything comes in your ears and kind of goes from the ear to the brain along the same pathways. But pretty quickly after some sort of basic processing, uh, there seems to be sort of different parallel pathways for speech versus music. Mm-hmm. Sung music, which has presumably speech content as well as music, is making use of both of those pathways. But we really don't know much about interactions between them. Hmm. My guess is that if you have some sort of damage to the speech or language parts of the brain, at least parts of the music pathways are spared. And so you can use what little bit of the speech part you have left and sort of piggyback off some of the music stuff. So to me, it sounds like this kind of built-in redundancy uh, can be potentially evolutionarily advantageous. So uh, all is not lost if there is some damage to one of the pathways. I wonder if there is an evolutionary advantage in the Darwinian sense for why we evolved music? Yeah, there's a lot of different theories about why we have music. 
There's also debate about whether music really has any sort of evolutionary benefit at all. There's been an interest in this, you know, for a long time, going all the way back to Darwin, and I'm sure long before that. And so Darwin and some other people think that music exists because it has benefits for finding and securing a mate. The idea that singing and playing music, people find highly desirable, and that's kind of why it's perpetuated its way through to the current day. But it's not clear that you know musicians have far more children than the non-musicians. Right. But there's other sorts of theories about maybe music was really helpful to our ancestors and communicating across larger social groups mm-hmm. or sort of bonding with each other or synchronizing action for marching or harvesting or some big group activities. Right. Or there's kind of the flip side of that, which is maybe music evolves the way to intimidate enemies or predators or in war to have drums and loud sort of synchronized sounds that are a sign of in-group or out-group. Mm. And then there's newer, interesting hypothesis that music actually evolves a way to sort of a communication between parents and children. Uh, there's this evolutionary conflict where as a a baby you want to secure your own survival so you want all of your parents attention on you but as a parent you of course want your child to survive but you also have a lot of other stuff you need to do and so yeah the idea is that music especially lullabies and and sung music is a way for parents to signal to their children that their needs are being met that i'm attending to you i care about you but also to free up their hands to do other stuff so that's that's a theory primarily from Sam Mayer uh, at Harvard. But I guess where I kind of stand on things is the idea that music isn't necessarily evolutionarily advantageous in the way that a lot of other sorts of things are, but that maybe it's just this thing that has come to exist that makes use of our sort of neural machinery that we have for things like speech and language or synchronizing movement and emotion, all these sorts of things that we find pleasurable. And it just sort of combines all of them in this appealing way that we find sort of enjoyable and therefore pursue with a lot of time and energy. Oh, I see. So you belong to Steven Pinker's Music is an Auditory Cheesecake camp. Yeah. The idea that cheesecake isn't something we necessarily evolved to love, but it has a lot of fat and sugar and things that do make sense for us to have evolved a taste for. And makes use of our predispositions for those things. I see. So lots of interesting evolutionary perspective on why or how music evolved, in human beings at least. We have now so far been talking about things you did in college or, you know, things you generally have read about in relation to music. Let's kind of shift our focus to what you're doing now which is studying how music is represented in the brains of musicians versus non-musicians. So tell us what that entails. What do you look for and what are some of the techniques that you use to study this question? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, At least so far, I have done mostly fMRI research. Mm -hmm. So that basically involves putting people in a magnet and showing them or presenting them with with different stimuli. So in my case, sound, often music. Mm -hmm. And then you can see where in the brain is, is activated by the different stimuli you're playing for the person. So I can see sort of a a map of where the brain is responding to different music and by creating experiments with different kinds of music or different kinds of sounds and manipulating them in certain ways, I can see 
which parts of the brain are more or less active. I see. I've been focusing on a part of the brain that people in our lab have uncovered in the past few years that seems to respond selectively for music. So it responds more to music than to any other kind of sound, which is pretty cool and something that we actually needed a lot of math to pull out. But now that we sort of have a, a way of finding that region, I'm interested in questions like, what is it about music that drives that part of the brain? Is it the fact that it has melody or rhythm Mm -hmm. or some other sort of acoustic features or is it a combination of all of those? So I'm trying to understand that. There's not a lot known really about these different music features and where they sort of are in the brain and how they relate to each other. We have evidence that there's a part of the brain that likes things that have a pitch So it responds a lot to music because music involves a lot of pitch, Mm -hmm. but it also responds to speech and animal sounds and other things that have some sort of pitch to them. So that's sort of one of the regions that we see that activates when we listen to music, but it's not selective for music. Like it also responds to other stuff. I see. And the same thing is true for regions that respond when we hear music that aren't motor, maybe rhythm regions that sort of like the fact that there's a beat or that there's a repetitive groove feeling to music. Mm-hmm. And some of those regions are sort of motory and they respond to other things as well. That's also true for emotion. So music has a lot of really important connections with emotion. And when we hear music and experience certain emotions, or maybe we have memories that are evoked, those emotion and memory regions are not specific to, you know, music evoked emotion. They're the same sorts of regions that we see involved in emotion that's evoked in other sorts of ways. I see. So all of that is really interesting in understanding what parts of the brain are sort of active when we're listening to music or producing music. But what I've been focusing on is this part of the brain that seems to respond sort of exclusively to music and understanding what that part of the brain really cares about. Is it melody or rhythm or both or all these other sorts of things? Wow, that's that's really interesting. So why do you think that music does not have an evolutionary advantage when we have evolved a dedicated region in the brain for the perception of music. Yeah, that definitely seemingly contradictory, isn't it? I feel like the the part of the brain that I'm talking about right now, like music selective, there's a very real possibility that there is some acoustic thing about music that's driving that, which you might see as disappointing if it turns out that it can be explained by some acoustic feature. There's also the possibility that that sort of brain region is in humans much bigger and sort of more robust and we can find it in individual people. But maybe that's just because we spend so much time our entire lives starting from, you know, even before birth, being exposed to music, kind of enforcing it to evolve more quickly and to be there in everybody, but that it's not necessarily completely evolved for that it has to do with our experience and it's just that we get so much experience with music that we see it in in everybody i see that's actually really interesting so kind of taking a step back and looping over the concepts that we have talked about we talked about how there are different separated pathways for speech and music perception and how there's a dedicated region in the brain that perceives music. I want to ask you another question. Even though this region is 
related to the perception of music and we've already talked about how the music pathways and the speech pathways are kind of separate. Do you think that there are similarities in terms of uh, this region and the region of the brain uh, that does speech recognition in terms of being able to recognize uh, patterns of sounds or rhythms or uh, or how you're able to kind of perceive movements in sign language or something like that? Yeah, that's that's another good question. So yeah, this, this word form area we see in people who can read, we see a part of the brain that responds when they see letters, which obviously that part of the brain doesn't exist in that way before you can read because you don't really have this understanding of it. Right. I would imagine that there's a lot of similarities between that and this sort of music selective region of the brain. It's probably just a lot harder, if not completely impossible to, to do that experiment because there's a pretty easy way of identifying people who can and can't read. And usually we're several years old before we learn to read. And there's some research that's been done with adults who learn to read. But it's really hard, if not impossible, to find people who have no experience with music. Yeah. And if it's something that sort of comes online pretty quickly after you become, I don't know, like fluent in, in music or after you sort of achieve a certain amount of experience with it, because you can hear in the womb starting several weeks before you're born. Mm-hmm. And if your parents listen to music or singing or going to a store that's playing music, like you, you have all, all that experience even before birth. Yeah. At least with the methods we have right now, we wouldn't be able to sort of see that point where it comes online. I see. So would looking at uh, people with congenital hearing impairments be a way to answer these questions? That's a great question. Yeah, I I would be super interested in that. I guess the reason, at least, that I can see that being really difficult is the way that we identify this sort of music selective region is by playing people sounds and then looking at pattern of activity in the brain. And if you can't hear, we wouldn't be able to do that experiment. Right. But there are potentially other ways that we could try to identify it maybe, you know, anatomically or just make a really good prediction about where it might be. I see. Speaking of um, using different demographics of people to understand how the brain is organized or at least how music perception is organized in the brain, do you know if there are studies that look at how um, music perception is different with musicians versus non-musicians? Yeah, so there's, I mean, a lot of differences between musicians and non-musicians and sort of obvious things, like musicians can play instruments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can do all, all of these sorts of things. And we do see differences in perceptual abilities. So if we really push people hard and do something like, you know, asking them to discriminate pitch differences, that musicians have much finer pitch discrimination than, than non-musicians. And the same thing's true for things like synchronizing with a beat or being able to tell whether two short melodies are the same or different. In general, people are very good at these things, even if they're non-musicians. But if we really sort of push people to the extreme, we see that musicians are far better than, than non-musicians. So there are some sort of differences in perception in that way. That isn't surprising, right? Because musicians yes. are trained specifically to do that. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not really super surprising. <laughs> you would hope that there's these differences after you spend so much time and yeah. achieve those things. And people have often, therefore, tried to figure out, you know, what is actually changing in the brain to sort of underlie these differences. Right. 
So there are a lot of obvious differences that you would expect based on motor control or these sorts of skills that are directly tied to playing an instrument. What is sort of, there's less agreement on, but a lot of interest in is uh, these sort of transfer effects. The idea that musical training, you can, it changes your brain in some way that then generalizes to beyond just playing your instrument or singing or something. There's a lot of ideas that musicians are better at things like understanding speech in noisy backgrounds. Oh yeah, the cocktail party problem. Which is actually what I studied during my master's degree. Oh, cool. Um, so for those of you who don't know what the cocktail party problem is, imagine that you're in a cocktail party and there are a lot of people around, there's like a lot of conversations going on between many different groups of people. There's like a background noise in general. But even within that background noise, if somebody somewhere in the room calls out your name, you will pick up that sound signal specifically about the noise background. Uh, this has been a long-standing interest for many people who study neuroscience and music perception. Apparently, musicians are there is evidence that musicians are better at um, recognizing particular streams of sound in a noisy background. Yeah, so there are a lot of findings that, yeah, musicians might have this advantage, but what is actually the difference in their brains that's allowing them to do this better? So there are some people who are thinking that it's sort of really low level, bottom up change from all these years of training that like your auditory system is just more efficient. And then there's another sort of hypothesis that maybe it has to do more with attention or these sort of higher level things that you might sort of see a benefit in after music training. If you're trained to pay attention to sound in a way that people who aren't musicians don't often practice doing. So yeah, that's one of the areas that there's a lot of research on. But that extends to a lot of ideas about, you know, whether music makes you smarter, or, you know, math, or all of these other things that people are studying. Mm-hmm. And there's mixed evidence. My thought personally, and based on doing some of these experiments myself, is that a lot of these differences, I think, are driven by things that are correlated with being a musician, like, you know, being from a higher socioeconomic status or, you know, having more education or all of these sorts of differences that are more related to things like intelligence than studying music per se. So it's really hard to look at these sorts of musician versus non-musician differences because obviously people are complicated and it's hard to group people in these two groups and make sure there's no other difference between them except that they're musicians and non-musicians. Right. Yeah, it's hard to say how big these sorts of differences are in far transfer domains like intelligence. Well, I mean, if I were to go out there and destroy the scientific method... I would say that a lot of the musicians I know are extremely smart, so I don't know. <laughs> um, but also, in, the, in making the statement that the qualities that a formal training in music confer on a musician are highly correlated with what are considered intelligence traits, we're only including those musicians who can afford a formal training in music. Doesn't this exclude a whole demographic of musicians who have extremely good music capabilities, but who are not actually formally trained? A really good example of this is actually street musicians that have, oh my god, such a good sense of rhythm. Yeah, yeah, I guess I should say all of this, at least the the scientific 
part is based on the kinds of people that we recruit for our studies, which is notoriously not a representative sample of people in the world. Mm-hmm. We even this acronym that people use, WEIRD, which, oh gosh, I put myself on the spot, stands for like white, educated, industrialized. Uh, right, right, right. White, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic, I think. Yeah. But basically the idea is we, we really only study a small sliver of the population. And when you're already sampling from such a small sliver, the correlation between musicianship and things like education level is even higher, I think, than if you were to look across the whole population. Because mm-hmm. yeah, there are definitely all kinds of outliers. And it could be possible that the kinds of musicians that are often studied in the kind of research I do are people like me who have purely sort of classical formal training. I see. But if the goal is to have a generalized understanding of how music perception pathways actually work in the brain, then it would make a lot of sense to have a demographic that is not so niche. Yeah, I definitely agree. (laughs) But given the prevalence of this whole weird a phenomenon that we see in a lot of social sciences and psychology studies. What do you think are the obstacles in including a diverse group of people for these studies? Yeah, I think the reason we don't is mostly like sort of the bureaucracy that comes with how you find people for these experiments that typically have a mailing list of people or it's, you know, something you post on the internet or you post flyers around the university hmm. or you, you know someone who knows someone. And so it's, it's all, you know, not the best way of really reaching different populations. Right. And there are some fields of research where they really make an effort. Uh, like I have a friend who specifically studies the effect of childhood poverty on reading. And so she does have to really make an effort to go out and find these people who wouldn't necessarily be volunteering for neuroscience studies. Um, So there are ways out there to try to expand your sort of participant pool, which, yeah, maybe it makes more sense for people studying perception and music to, to make use of those techniques to try to get a better idea. All right. So we have now been talking about kind of the advantages that a musical training will have on your cognitive or perceptive abilities. Sort of along the same lines, let's kind of talk about cultures and how they influence our cognitive abilities, in particular music perception. We know that different cultures have very different kind of musics that are very distinctive Have there been any studies that have looked at how music perception changes as a function of culture in terms of the music that you're always exposed to and you grew up with? Yeah, so there is a lot of cross-cultural research. One of the biggest effects that we see is not specific to music, but it's the idea of perceptual narrowing. Uh, Babies, when they're young, they are fluent in all kinds of music. There's experiments where you can play infants two different, I guess, melodies or drum rhythms from a culture that's very different from their own. And they can discriminate them just fine, just as well as someone who's native to that kind of music. Mm-hmm. But we lose that ability as we get older. So basically your perceptual system becomes more sort of focused in on what you're exposed to in your daily life. Oh, I see. 
And we find the same thing with speech. So, and I would imagine that in addition to just differences in the kind of music that you're sort of exposed to, the kind of training is also probably very different. I mean, I only read music and like sat and would play something and my teacher would stop me and I would boot over and over and over. It was all very formal and the opposite of what I assume a lot of people get when they are sort of learning. I mean, I did no sort of playing by ear. I never did any improvisation, which is so divorced from how sort of music is in most places in the world and definitely throughout history. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's really interesting. Do you know what sort of metrics that they used to identify a particular piece of music as belonging to a certain genre, um, both for the stimulus provided and to classify the reaction of the babies? That's a great question that I have not thought much about. You you mean genre like within a certain culture? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Or even between cultures, like what, what is the... What, what are the aspects of music that make us think, oh, this is Spanish music. Oh, this is. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's a, oh man, I would love to have a better answer for that. But I think, I mean, obviously a lot of it is, you know, rhythmic patterns. So at least the study that I'm trying to think of what had a lot to do with meter. So mm-hmm. I, it was much more complex meter for the foreign music versus more like mm-hmm sort of Western, it was like a march sort of rhythm. I see. So yeah, I think rhythmic pattern has a huge effect. Obviously, tonal systems have a pretty big effect too. Yeah, so I guess more than sort of operating at a genre level, maybe it's easier to sort of try to study these things when, and just talk about, you know, meter. And mm-hmm. then we can look at how meter sort of maps on to different cultures' musics. I think that's usually how people have been thinking about it rather than trying to just use a genre. Mm-hmm. Or they use a genre, but then also try to go beyond that. Right, I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, rhythm patterns seem to be one of the metrics of characterizing a certain piece of music. What other metrics are there? Is intonation one of the aspects? Oh, and um, does language affect the way people perceive music? Ooh, I don't... I don't know. I would guess so. The first thing I think about when you talk about language and music is the fact that there are tonal languages out there. That's something that a lot of people sort of think about as sort of an intermediate maybe. Yeah. And there is some evidence that being the speaker of a tonal language makes you more likely to have absolute pitch. Hmm. So there's at least transfer in, in that direction. I don't know necessarily what is sort of mediating that relationship There's also some thought that maybe that's not actually having to do with language experience, but maybe it has to do with the fact that countries that have tonal languages often start musical training very early. So there's sort of confounding factors there. I see. I would guess that sort of your acoustic history plays a part in, you know, what you're able to discriminate in the sounds you hear now. And if we see it, you know, within speech and within music, I'm guessing that there's probably at least some cross relationships there. Mm -hmm. I guess the question is whether the sorts of features in speech that you're maybe focusing in on. So after this perceptual narrowing happens, and you're kind of just listening to the contrast in your language, whether those sorts of features are important in music. Right, I see. Cool. So 
we have been talking a lot about how auditory stimuli like rhythm patterns, intonation, language, and even um, culture in the sense of when you are exposed to a certain kind of music, what kinds of music you're exposed to, and uh, how your language, uh, whether it's tonal or atonal, kind of has an impact on your musical perception. What about non-auditory precepts? Like, people who visualize colors when they hear music and... Oh, man. Talking about synesthesia. I know very little about that beyond what everybody knows. Yeah, so the thought there is that there's just sort of stronger connections between, like, the visual parts of the brain and the auditory parts of the brain or whatever sort of senses you have that are entwined. But yeah, I guess at the other end of the spectrum, there are some, like, deficits like amusia Mm -hmm. um, which is like a primarily a pitch deficit it's kind of you know tone deafness it's called in the sort of general public where you aren't really able to discriminate intervals usually within like a a minor third is what it usually is the diagnostic criteria so it makes it really hard to recognize melodies because you can't tell if the notes are going up or down you're not very good at singing right there's thought that that's sort of more common than we would think it's just that people don't really know. Yeah, so that's that's sort of a pitch problem. And there seems to be a sort of a rhythmic disorder, which I've just heard called beat deafness. There's only been a few people who have been like identified by science and studied, but they seem completely unable to tap their toe along with a beat or do any of these sorts of very basic tasks that we take for granted, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, a few minutes ago, I guess I just made a blanket assumption that all cultures have some sort of music. Do we know that this is actually true? Or do we know of cultures that don't have any sort of recognizable form of music? I don't think so. Um, I'm not an ethnomusicologist. But as far as I know, every culture that we've made contact with or done some data gathering on all seem to have music. It might be very different from what we're considering, but it at least has the presence of a certain number of different features it shares. One of my professors does research with a tribe in the Amazon, the Chimane. They basically go and do research with them because they have such a different life experience, experience with sound. But at least for music, didn't have radios or sort of exposure to Western music. And so there's this example where you can test a lot of these assumptions that we have about at least Western music. Like, is this the preference for consonant that we're dissonant? Is that really sort of innate and biological or is it culturally determined? And their music, they have music. They have people who they describe as musicians. They have, you know, songs that they sing, but they have the absence of things like harmony. They only have solo singing or solo instrument playing. It's only a single melodic line. Mm -hmm. Even though they have multi-string instruments, there's no sort of harmony. It's always a single melodic line. They don't even sing together at the same time, which is a fundamentally sort of different way of having music. Wow, I see. Um, So we have a clip from the Chimane tribe of them singing music. Thanks to Melinda McPherson for sending me this clip. Um, Let's... Listen to a few seconds of what the Chimane tribe music sounds like. 
Josh McDormand's group. Josh is one of Dana's PhD advisors, and this clip is from his paper, Indifference to Dissonance in Native Amazonians Reveals Cultural Variation in Music Perception. This paper was published in 2016 in Nature, Volume 535. You can find the full citations on our webpage. So, mm-hmm. Dana. We have today managed to talk about many different things, including how music is represented in a different pathway than speech in humans, at least, and how all cultures that we've made contact with have music some form or the other, and about the way music perception is studied in science and the effects of culture on music perception and other cognitive abilities too. Having done all of this research for a really long time and having been in music almost all your life, what do you think is the future of the science in music? Do you think that one day science will be able to explain all the aspects of music? Yeah, uh, that is the question and I was trying to think of an answer to that and I was afraid you were going to ask. <laughs> I mean, as a person who's doing science and studying music, I would like to think that we can, you know, learn all kinds of things. And we can really answer a lot of the questions we have about music, but I'm not really sure that we can. Definitely with the methods we have today. I don't think we can answer a lot of the questions that we have, um, at least not satisfactorily. Maybe someday, but I'm not sure that even if we have things perfectly understood and characterized, that that will stop us from having additional questions, or that that will really explain all of these things the way that we want it to be explained. I guess it's like, even if we can explain absolutely everything, like if, I don't know, I'm thinking of like DNA, if we have like the human genome all written out, does that answer all of the questions that we have? I mean, it gets us really far to answering a lot of the questions, but it just feels like that's a different level of analysis than what a lot of people think is important. Is it going to satisfy us if we have, you know, a totally mechanistic understanding? If I can, you know, take a piece of music and predict exactly what's going to happen in the brain and different people and we know why and all of this stuff, if we can treat different conditions with specifically engineered music or something completely fanciful, is that what we want? I don't know. But if we could do that, it would be very interesting to explore the kinds of music that are completely beyond our capacities right now with the way we do music. A complete and total mechanistic understanding of music might give us a completely different form of music that we are incapable of imagining, right? That would be very wild. Yeah. It could turn out to be 
potentially a double-edged sword maybe because we could end up losing a lot of the music that we have. People might start doing only those kinds of music that enhances their dopamine levels or something very tailored like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of things about music that are kind of redundant, or I don't know, inherited purely because of well, obviously like culture and history that aren't necessarily biologically important. But yeah, if you take away a lot of those things, I don't know, it's not quite, not quite the same. Yeah. Thank you again, Dana, for being here today. Yeah. Uh, I'll be very interested to see like what kinds of people you have. And I would love to hear how somebody who is like exclusively a musician and has a very different background than me, how they would like answer a lot of these questions. Yeah, me too. It'll be really interesting to hear different perspectives that I would have never actually thought of. Uh, And folks, if you want to learn more about some of the concepts we discussed here today, go to our webpage, ninadamusic.blogspot.com. We also have citations to the papers we discussed here and more clips from the Chimane tribe and some snippets of the conversation too, which didn't quite make it to the edited version of the podcast. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time, keep listening to the ways of music. <laughs>